Well, in our abbreviated time of reflection tonight for the Lord's table, I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. The history of literature and especially of fiction is very simply, by and large, a study of the subject of justice. Genre of theater, even primetime television mirrors that fictional literature as well. And for the most part, every plot moves toward justice. It creates a scenario where there's an injustice committed attention where you're angry at and feel vitriol toward the villain and then justice is rendered at the end. Shakespeare was one of the first to popularize the Greek idea of a tragedy in which justice was ultimately not rendered, right? You read the end and it doesn't end like you hoped it would. I will not forget my first feeling, I remember it very distinctly, of vitriol and justice. I was a very young child watching Disney's animated classic 101 Dalmatians. And you remember the villain, right? Cruella de Vil. Now that, was, that little animated film was built on the 1956 novel, uh, uh, The 101 Dalmatians, in which this lady, if you can call her that, uh, wanted to get these puppies to skin them so that she could have their fur for wearing. What that doesn't tell you is what she was like in the book, the literature book, which was she would drown cats, she would beat animals. She was a bad lady. And I remember as a little kid, so happy. I don't know if you remember that, um, that Disney classic, but she had the meanest face, scared me to death. And when she got her justice in the end and she went to jail for what she was going to do to those puppies, I just felt like the world was calibrated, realigned, and all was going to be well. The Bible talks about villains and heroes as well. The problem is, we like to see justice come to those who are villains. But we're not so quick to understand that we, we are villains to God. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, ours, but also for those of the whole world. This passage speaks of justice. Speaks of propitiation, which is justice rendered by someone taking on justice for someone else. It's what we call in theology substitutionary atonement. God, God's wrath and anger as sin must be satisfied or propitiated, and it's either propitiated in a, a person forever in hell or Jesus on the cross who paid the sentence of that eternal destruction. 
We'd like to think that God grades on a curve. He doesn't. We'd like to think that there are people who are better than others. There aren't. But it's easy for us to identify those who we think are worse than us. I, I, I've told you before, I will never forget when I was uh, my first year in seminary, the only place I could preach was a captive audience at the Castaic prison. They were literally a captive audience. And I would go and preach the chapels there. And the reason was that, that they came to the chapel is that they, they wanted some kind of break in their day. And so I'll go and you talk about a slouching, disinterested group of guys who were just happy to be out of their cell and they were just there to pass the time. That's, that's not all of them. There were some who were genuinely believers who come to faith in Christ. There was such an encouragement. But I remember talking to them and being overwhelmed by the sense of their warped view of justice. I remember talking to a guy across the table. We were having Twinkies. And he was saying, <clears throat> I, I, I said, listen, I'm, I'm not sure you know, why you're here, but I can tell you, I was trying to be really subtle about it. He said, I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I armed robbery, two accounts, got away with one that caught me on the second one. He's pretty proud of that. And before I could talk to him about his own life, he said, but I'm not as bad as that guy over there. And he showed me a guy, he says, he's here because he raped and murdered an old lady. In his mind, he was not as bad as that guy. But isn't it, isn't it easy for us to think similarly? Well, I'm not in prison at all. Well, I don't do that. Well, I don't live there. I haven't done X or Y or Z. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God doesn't look at us and he grades us on the curb as if, well, you're okay and you're not. That's what the idea of purgatory was born from is that some people needed to pay off, be purged of their sins at a more severe degree than others, but you always had a second chance. There are obviously people who are more explicit in their sins than us and people who are less explicit in their sins than you and me, but everyone is guilty nonetheless. Nahum chapter one, verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Deuteronomy 32, four, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without justice, righteous without injustice rather, righteous and upright is he. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness or the justice of God in him. Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Will he not do what's right? Romans three twenty three. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is critical that all of us find our own soul as ground zero for the righteous and furious and well-deserved wrath of God on you and on me. Without that understanding, there is no appreciation of the gospel. Without that understanding, there is no appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Listen, we have far too high an opinion of ourselves. We don't have a self-esteem problem. 
The only problem we have with our self-esteem is thinking too highly of ourselves in relation to God. God looks at us as cruel, wicked sinners worthy and deserving of hell and damnation forever in a Christless in eternity. And yet, in amazing, gracious, sweet, unexpected, undeserved condescension, he became a man to take on that punishment and that wrath instead of us, on behalf of us, in place of us. My historical hero, as you know, is Jonathan Edwards. And history has not been very kind to Mr. Edwards. Remember that sermon he preached? We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, but those, those hands were nailed to a cross in gracious gifting unexpected kindness. Why would he do that for someone like you and, and someone like me? J.I. Packer says, the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play the subject of God's justice and judgment down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and not all do, he says, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about the kindness of God but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during these past years have you heard of, or if you are a minister, did you preach on a sermon regarding the wrath of God? How long is it, I wonder, since a Christian spoke straight on this subject on a radio or television program or in those half-column sermonettes that appear in the national dailies and magazines? And if a man did so, how long would it be before he would be asked no longer to speak or write again? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the subject, end quote. I want to go back again. If we don't understand what this passage says, who Jesus is to be our propitiation and the absorption of the wrath of God on our behalf, we don't understand the gospel. That is the good news about the bad news that we are condemned because of our sin. What I want to do is just briefly break down this passage just in just a few minutes and then we're going to receive the Lord's table and to look at two ways that Jesus Christ protects us from God's holiness. God's holiness is aimed at our, our sin in a deserving way. And we find out something about the character of Christ. This is a Christology, a mini study of the, of the person of Christ here in verses one and two. The first way that Christ protects us from God's holiness is in verse one. He is our righteous defender against God's wrath. He is our righteous defender against God's wrath. 
My little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The motivation for, under, for not sinning is understanding the forgiveness that God has granted to us in the gospel. This is a motivating verse. This is a motivation verse. And if anyone sins, he wants us to know we have an advocate. There's good news. We have someone on our side advocating as an attorney for us in heaven with the Holy Father under whose wrath we live. And then he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous or the righteous one, the just one. John has described the believer's ongoing battle with sin in, in chapter one. He identifies the cycle in which we're all aware. There's awareness of our sin, confession of our sin, repentance of our sin, and then we commit sin and commit sin again. Now he explains the ultimate provision we have for our sin. He says, I wanna, I wanna tell you this so you may not sin. And he means so you won't, will not be enslaved to sin. He doesn't mean that you can be perfect. And if anyone sins, the idea if anyone should sin, when you sin, we have an advocate. The word means a defender, an attorney. Against what? Against God. With God. On our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father. One who stands on our side with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, one of the things that I, I love reading about in the scriptures is the way Jesus is described. This is one of my favorites. He's the righteous. It's the same word as he's the just. He protects us. He's our advocate. What a, what a thought. Remember Romans 8? He sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. This is a, a graphic thought, but it's almost as if every time you and I sin... And it would provoke the righteous, furious anger of, and wrath of God every time our Lord Jesus bends over and speaks to the Father and says, no, no, I've died for that. He's our advocate. He's our defender against God's wrath. What a gift. What a gracious kindness. But number two, in verse two, he's also our protector from God's justice. He's our protector from God's justice. Now, there's a slight difference between wrath and justice, and we meet that in verse two. He himself is the propitiation. It's a big word that we, we see. Maybe you've heard of it before. It means satisfaction. It means resolution. It was used of, uh, of, uh, in ancient literature of the Greek gods and the Roman gods who, who had revenge and they were finally satisfied and it broke the cycle of payback. He breaks the cycle. He stops the wrath. He ends the punishment. He accepts the just sentence. He himself, look at, it's, it's emphatic in the Greek. He himself, personally, he personally is the satisfaction for our sins. The metting out, the justice, the Satisfaction and propitiation for our sins. When we come to the table, we come to the realization and the remembrance that He took our punishment. You can explain this to a little child. 
when they are expecting and they deserve the rod of reproof, to tell them, you deserve the rod. But how would you feel if, if I took the rod for you? What if I brought your mother in and instead of spanking you, I took your spanking for you? Well, they would first be elated, right? But I think, as they say in the NFL, upon further review, they would probably begin thinking, wait, that's not what? Fair. It's not fair to who? To dad. Someone took my spanking. Someone took my punishment. That simple illustration is exactly what's happening on a macro level for all the sins ever committed for those who believe. He takes on the punishment, the wrath, the the discipline that we deserve. Now, don't be too hung up here where it says not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Obviously, we don't believe in universalism where everyone is saved. He's not saying that he is... He's the the forgiver of everyone's sin. People do go to hell. What he's saying is anyone who could be saved in the world, he is that propitiation and the only one. He's the only savior for anyone who would believe. Judgment is certain and there are only two options for how it will happen. Everyone in the world will be judged by God either in hell for eternity Or through Jesus on the cross. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, there will be a day of reckoning. Luke chapter 12 says there will be a day when everything hidden will be spoken from the rooftop. Everything will become open. Revelation 12, 20, uh, 12. One day all the books will be open. Nothing will be hidden. the last time you really thought I mean took a moment to stop and did what Packer says that we really do and and thought deeply and reflect reflectively about hell I, I want to admit I, I find my, my mind has a natural resistance like oil and water I just want to separate that I want to put that in a in a back corner of my mind and know it's true but I just don't like thinking about it It's a horrific thought and an even worse reality. It's a place of fiery torment, everlasting fire, eternal flame in Jude 7, fire and brimstone, Revelation 14. Remember the Dante's Inferno? We read that in literature. The last line, the inscription over the gates of hell read, all hope abandoned. Ye who enter here. And as awful as hell is, I think what disturbs me most is that there is no appeal, no second chance. When it happens, it's over. Look, I get it, and I know what some of you are thinking. I've had loved ones, I've had family members who've died And unless something happened that I wasn't aware of, entered into a Christless eternity. And that is a soul and heart ripping reality, but it's no less true just because I don't like it. 
We have people like John Paul, Pope John Paul II, who, by the way, was a confirmed universalist, said in a weekly address on July 28, 1999, quote, Rather than a physical place, hell is a state of those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. Then he says this, the thought of hell and even less the improper use of biblical images about hell must not ever create anxiety or despair, end quote. I think it's important to think about God's wrath and hell so that we can remember him who saved us from it. Now, you may be saying, wow, this is kind of heavy, Rick. It is, and it should be, which is what makes the cross so amazing. He took the wrath for me. He takes on God's punishment for those who believe. We sing it all the time, bore the wrath. He bore our sin on his sinless self. God made him who knew no sin to be sin itself on our behalf, that we would become his justice, his righteousness in God. It's amazing. It's amazing. 